back at 2020 and ahead to 2021. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, Ben. Same to you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, it's a, it's always a strange time of year here as we get into the final holidays of the year and look ahead to the new year. There's a lot to reflect on, a lot to look ahead to, um, a million articles I want to get done, all sorts of things that uh, are on the agenda. And then, of course, also, you know, uh, a little time, time off and such. So a lot going on, um, but it's really a uh, important, fascinating time in New York politics and uh, excited to sort of wrap up the year. This is our last show of the year. Excited to, to wrap it up uh, today with, a, with an interesting discussion. And I feel like some of the stuff that we talk about on the show and cover in our day jobs also has that end of rush feel to it. You know, you have uh, the vaccines coming in, the city hospitals, you have uh, questions about uh, how how long we'll be able to maintain the relative openness of life in the city until it has to be shut down, whether we can get through the Christmas and New Year's season without doing that. Obviously, Congress and the stimulus bill, the, you know, slow probably inexorable move to a peaceful transition of power in Washington. It feels like everyone is kind of racing to get things in under the deadline this year. Yeah. And, you know, it was um, quite something to see the federal bill uh, get passed, the new aid package, stimulus package. Um, It has a lot in it, but it also leaves out city and state and locality uh, aid for, for those budgets, government budgets in specific. So, you know, those have been huge questions hanging over New York that remain open questions as we look ahead to a Biden administration. Um, but so much in that package that, you know, it's interesting because it's it's so many things that New York needs, including uh, four billion dollars for the MTA. But one of the things about it is that I think Senate Republicans and, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell were um, finally willing to get something done because they think it will help them hold on to these two Georgia Senate seats and therefore the the Senate chamber, which could have really problematic impacts for New York, uh, looking for more aid from the federal government. So there's a real catch 22 there. But I think just about everybody is pretty pleased to take what the federal government got to there. Yeah, I think people will take what they can get in terms of action from Washington. And our focus on this show, because it is our last of the year, is going to be on things that obviously are shaped by what goes on in Washington, but much more local in focus. Uh, we're going to talk about Bill de Blasio's final year, which begins on January 1st. It will be the, uh, that will be the seventh anniversary of his inauguration, uh, his last 365 days in office. And of course, running peril to that, at least through the June primary and technically through November, uh, is the 2021 mayoral election and other municipal elections, a huge potentially generational change in city government uh, that we'll be looking at carefully and talking to Mara Gay of the New York Times editorial board and Sally Goldenberg, who is the city hall bureau chief political in New York about both of those, Bill de Blasio's final year and the races to replace him and fill out the rest of the roster for city government. This conversation about the two themes that you just mentioned that will be running concurrently in 2021 of Bill de Blasio's final year. It'll also be the final year for uh, city council speaker, Corey Johnson and the, and this class of the city council. And so how the mayor and the city council work together will be a really important theme for, for 2021. 
a theme that took a significant shift when Corey Johnson, the council speaker, uh, declared that he's not running for mayor. He's one of the very few that have decided to opt out of this race. Um, and then this this ongoing, very crowded, very confusing race to replace de Blasio, which we can't say enough Um is facing a June primary for for the first time after being in September previously uh, is so important. And so uh, an exciting conversation to both break down the importance of de Blasio's last year, his legacy, what he needs to get done in 2021 to try to leave the city in as good shape as possible, heading into a new mayor who for all intents and purposes, we're going to probably know who the new mayor is once the June primary is decided because the city is so democratic. And that will be a very interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, you and I have been doing this sort of job for some time. I think I I, I covered the 97 mayoral campaign as a college student and others uh, later than that. And we've been doing this uh, podcast now for, I think it's uh, it'll be five years come January. So we've done this year end stuff a lot, both on our websites and as a podcast or radio show together. Uh, but this year, it really does feel like the, the turn of the calendar ushers in a really fascinating period because, as you mentioned, we have this relatively soon primary in June for the first time in a long time with wide open fields because of term limits, because of ranked choice voting, because of the very generous match in public financing. Um, You have de Blasio, who is this uh, polarizing figure uh, coming to his final year and all this amid a COVID crisis that really does not feel like it's winding down at all, even though the vaccines are being issued slowly to certain sections of the population. Uh, And you have obviously the resulting economic crisis and fiscal crisis and all the very difficult challenges those will pose to the city. And we're happy to be joined now by Mara Gay of the New York Times editorial board and Sally Goldenberg, the City Hall Bureau Chief for Political New York. Mara, Sally, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks Thanks for having having me. So um, we want to get into Mayor de Blasio's final year that's coming up, what he needs to do, his challenges, opportunities, where his legacy's at right now, and a lot of other stuff. Um, and then the race to replace him, of course. Um, but before we go to 2021, um, were there things that you learned about New York politics in 2020? Are there big lessons that we learned about um, our government leadership, how our government works and doesn't work, um, you know, anything related to our politics that sort of really um, came to the fore for you here in 2020, which was obviously such a tragic uh, year in New York and elsewhere. Uh, and we saw, you know, a lot of our government leaders uh, have to step up in a, in a very different way than they had in the past. Um, anything particular as we're wrapping up 2020 that that you learned about New York politics and New York politicians this year? Uh, one thing that struck me that, that is not new to me, but I was struck by how much this permeated is the relationship between the governor and the mayor. You know, I think we in the press have covered this um, dysfunctional relationship for so long that, you know, I just sort of assumed it's baked in and people don't really care and it's sort of inside baseball. But I've noticed with the mayoral candidates at all these forums and in all their stump speeches, they talk about the fact that they purportedly will work well with uh, Governor Cuomo. And it occurred to me and that 
that really is that's become an issue for the general public. And I think seeing Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio fight over a public health crisis where, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, have lost their lives is just so off putting to so many people. And the de Blasio team, whenever we talk about this, will always say like, well, we're being bullied. We're not really, it's not really a fight. That's sort of an unfair characterization. The governor comes after us and bullies us. And what are we supposed to do? And they're not playing fair. And the governor's team sort of paints the mayor as like bumbling and incompetent. So that's the state of affairs. And it really hasn't gotten much better during a pandemic, which is I'm not surprised because that's, you know, what I would have expected. But I, I think it has become a central issue for New Yorkers. They know and they know that it has ramifications. I agree with that. I also think that kind of mirrors a positive shift, which is people are paying more attention to local politics in general. Um, participation is up as well in local elections. Um, and that's true for voters and, and voter turnout. But also, I think, you know, just seeing tens of thousands of New Yorkers who had never protested before in the streets is another good indicator. Um, people kind of want to know who their DA is now mm-hmm. or their council person or member of Congress. And I think that's a really positive development. Um, and that's one of the legacies of the Trump administration, that's kind of ironic, but I think is is really um, exciting to think about. The other thing that broke through for me is uh, this really tragic thing that happened, which is um, obviously foremost the deaths and uh, the sickness and the suffering. But I think we just, it really brought us to this breaking point where this large issue of income inequality and racial inequality that has always been there and been a point of discussion in local politics. It's what Mayor de Blasio staked his entire campaign on in 2013. That was kind of academic for a lot of people. And now it's just, you know, whether you are on uh, the right side of that divide, so to speak, determined not just what neighborhood you get to live in or where you get to send your kids to school, but whether you lived or died or got sick or didn't or could stay or go or could send your kid to private school or not. And I, I think that's going to shape uh, next year's race in ways we haven't fully understood yet. Yeah, I think I mean, I think for me, um, you know, one of the interesting things you just got at that has been a, a, a theme I've been thinking about and and like with a lot of this, you know, don't necessarily have fully baked thoughts or, or big conclusions. But, you know, we had this whole discussion this year about who's an essential worker and who's not and who, um, you know, who the who the general public considers, you know, as sort of first responders and essential workers. And then all of a sudden, everybody who works at a grocery store or a bodega is an essential worker and how, you know, both society and government, you know, think about uh, all the categories of people that fall within that bigger category and what the government does to help those people protect those people. And, th- and that connects to those even broader social uh, inequalities and trends that you just mentioned, Mara, and, you know, just sort of seeing a little bit of what both city and state government have and haven't been able to do. And of course, none of that, none of that conversation can happen really without mentioning the federal government, but even in the federal government's absence, you know, what, what city and state, government have and haven't been able to do has been has been striking. Uh, and, and lastly, I'll just say, you know, I think one of the things for me that I'm thinking about as the year ends here is the, um, 
you know, the role of the legislatures, both the city council and the state legislature and how, you know, in an emergency like this, you know, it makes a lot of sense that in some ways they they were sidelined because you need sort of the executive um, branch to take a lot of control and make a lot of decisions. But it's also been really striking to me how absent the city council and the state legislature have been using their legislative powers throughout this this year. I think the, you know, the the confluence of the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor protests and the pandemic have been almost scripted in terms of how, as Mara said, they've put the issues of inequality, income and racial on the table. And I think that's going to have an interesting shaping effect, at least uh, I expect, on the mayoral campaign in that normally in a time of crisis with the budget in a mess and after de Blasio's difficulties as a manager, you figure this would be a contest for who is going to be, you know, a Mike Bloomberg managerial type mayor to kind of like get the trains running on time and get us out of this mess. But I really think that the kind of yearning for social justice means that whoever wins is going to have to have a pretty well well articulated social agenda too. So that's, I think, a break from from history. Um, Speaking of history, so we're about to inaugurate uh, the eighth year of Bill de Blasio's mayoralty, um, his final year in office. And I'm wondering, starting with you, Sally, when you think about the whole trajectory of his kind of public life, or at least life as a would-be mayor and a mayor from, you know, coming from behind to win in 2013, entering office in kind of a rush of progressive fervor, all the ups and downs. Where is de Blasio now as he enters his final year? It's been a rocky year for him. What do you see as his kind of position? I think that he he is sort of a, a small mayor, you know, I don't think that history will write that he has been the disaster that the, you know, press and the chattering class might want to think he's been because the external uh, markers of success are, you know, relatively decent leading up to the pandemic. Um, You know, he maintained a pretty big drop in crime while also maintaining a big reduction in stop and frisk. Um, and he did build a lot of, or finance a lot of affordable housing. And of course he got pre-kindergarten, you know, running for all four-year-olds and started it for three years old, three-year-olds. And he started the process of closing Rikers Island, which is a priority for many people, you know, in the criminal justice advocacy space. But he's, He's a sort of insular figure who doesn't really um, use the bully pulpit of the mayoralty very broadly and doesn't give his commissioners a lot of latitude to try um, sort of bold and controversial things that aren't tightly in line with his agenda. And as a result, there's a lot that just doesn't get tried and doesn't get done you know, he had seven years or I guess it was six years of like a good, a very good economic situation and really no external problem with the exception, as I already mentioned, of a dysfunctional relationship with Governor Cuomo, which is a big problem for him. Other than that, he had a compliant city council, a good economy and um, really no there, there was really nothing in his way except his own sort of uh, inhibitions. So I think he squandered a lot of good times when he could have been more imaginative, more visionary. I don't think that makes him like a terrible mayor. And I think he will, I think pre-K will be a big legacy for him. Rikers Island, uh, 
jury's out, depends on what happens, if they actually move it. And then if the new smaller jails are, you know, uh, a better situation. But I think broadly, he, you know, he missed a lot of opportunities on infrastructure, on the environment, transportation, on school integration, on um, economic development. And now, you know, it really would be unfair to for anyone to expect him in this final year as he's battling a global pandemic in his city to like think about anything else. So it's uh, I think unless fortunes really turn, I think his time is kind of quickly winding down. What do you think, Mara? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I just think the story of the missed opportunities uh, that came with this mayor and this period of time and is really just kind of sad. Um, It's not that nothing got done or that the mayor hasn't had any impact, but even in, in what some might consider smaller ways, for example, giving pay raises, which he could have done to EMS workers, um, which by the way, would have really gone a long way to advance job opportunity and income inequality um, issues in for single women who are moms in the city for, uh, you know, it's a majority minority force. Um, and, you know, that, that could have been done, wasn't. I think the mayor really didn't, um, he just, he, he really squandered those opportunities, I think in part, unfortunately, because he turned out to be very conservative with like a small C in terms mm-hmm. of um, his use of political capital. Uh, the same is true, I think, with policing, unfortunately, and a whole host of other issues, including school integration. So it's and now you can't expect it to get done, as Sally said. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, any, ex- any expectations for what he you know, will try to get done this year, what he can get done? And and, and Sally and Mara, I want to ask this question of you. Like, what is the what's the time frame he has to get anything done before you know we, we actually have turn the page. Sally. I mean, he has the whole year. He can do something up until December 31st, even if people are paying attention to the Democratic primary race that's become like a, you know, a 30 person circus. It doesn't stop him from governing. So he has, you know, a year and uh, eight days or whatever it is to do things. And he signaled in the last week that he is concerned about some core uh, pieces of his legacy, school segregation and the police force, the police department's use of force during the protests. You know, he he delivered an apology for that. Um, Of course, it was in timing with a report that, you know, uh, was coming out by the Department of Investigation that really uh, called the the police department to task. But he you know, he was uncharacteristically apologetic about that and made some moves after all this time toward, you know, reshaping how children get into specialized high schools because that is so racially imbalanced. Um, So perhaps we're seeing going into his final year that he's reflective of his mission when he was elected, which was income and racial inequality in all its various permutations. And he might be looking to right some of those, you know, problems, but it's hard, you know, he's the mayor of a city in the middle of a pandemic. He runs 11 public hospitals. He runs a workforce that has budget constraints. And, um, you know, it's going to be hard for him to 
just focus on other things. There are going to be a number of crises, you know, that just keep coming to his doorstep and people are leaving high quality commissioners and people are leaving. It's going to be hard for him to replace them. You know, the transportation commissioner left recently. She'd been there since the beginning. The sanitation commissioner is, of course, running for mayor herself. Um, and of course, these people are being replaced. But, you know, you're seeing a high caliber of people leaving. And, um, but to answer your question, he has a year. I mean, just because the press corps will be covering a mayoral forum doesn't mean de Blasio shouldn't keep at it until the last day he's in office. Can I just say, I think listening to Sally and all of you guys, I think, uh, the challenge for the mayor and for the next mayor as well, right, is to, seize this moment of disruption to find the opportunities. So, you know, no doubt we have huge challenges and, you know, Sally just had a great story about the 3% budget cuts that the agencies are going to have to make um, across the board. So there's going to be pain for sure. But, you know, one thing that I've been focused on recently is just um, a series of editorials looking at, you know, how can we use this moment to improve the city. So if things are broken, for example, if you can't hold, safely hold a high stakes uh, test to get into a specialized school right now, maybe we shouldn't be doing that at all anyway. If uh, we have outdoor dining, then we should keep that. We should expand it. We should make streets safer for pedestrians. And, And so, you know, how can you kind of use this huge upheaval and tragedy to find some good in it and to kind of reshape the city to make it, as the mayor might say, fairer, right? (laughs) Jared, I wanted to ask you to jump in on sort of the housing theme because that's obviously been such a big one uh, of the, you know, in the mayor's um, tenure and also one that is thrown even further into upheaval. We don't know what's going to happen around evictions. You know, the federal moratorium was just extended it's really hard to say exactly how that's going to find its sort of final equilibrium. But there seems to be a whole bunch of other things that in the mayor's final year, he could maybe put in motion or just continue to sort of kick the can down the road in the housing picture. And I know, you know, you guys at City Limits cover that stuff so extensively. Is there anything on that front that you're most looking at here? Yeah, well, I mean, the budget cuts last year that kind of pushed back some of the capital spending uh, hamstring to some degree how much work you put on the street this year in terms of the new building, their preservation projects. Um, obviously, the getting the NYCHA plan moving forward is a is a big thing he could do, and I expect they will have some success there. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, he built so much of the housing plan, at least kind of the public political face around rezonings. And the Gowanus one is really the last one of those that has a major housing component built into it that's coming through. Um, although the Soho Noho thing could could have some elements of that too. And it remains to be seen, you know, exactly how that will progress. I mean, obviously there's the question practically about public engagement around it, given the pandemic restrictions. Um, There's, you know, what's the appetite going to be in the council as people involved in that rezoning and the decisions around it run for other offices. So there are a lot of variables there, but the construction and preservation slowed down a lot last year. I think it might pick up a little bit this one. Um, He's not going to come anywhere near his 300,000 
uh, goal, um, or at least the the pace that he was supposed to be at for uh, his term. But um, then the, you know, Corey Johnson's call for comprehensive planning throws kind of an interesting wrinkle into discussion of housing by the candidates running to replace him, I think. Um, before we move on from, from de Blasio and into 2021, I wanted to come back to something Mara said about kind of psychoanalyzing the mayor, which is something I love to do. And the, the idea of him being a small C conservative, um, given the potential for him to make use of this crisis to do something bolder, how do you think that uh, opportunity and his, I imagine his hope to try to get something meaningful done in his last 12 months and eight days. Um, do you think that that will kind of arrest his instinctive conservatism? Will we see a new Boulder Mayor de Blasio? Is he, is he capable of doing that? Well, I guess we'll find out. I mean, to Sally's <laughs> point, we did see in just recent days um, with his uh, announcements about um, changing just to- totally, really, I think, blowing up middle school admissions for a year and high school admissions, um, you know, kind of making it easier for kids from all backgrounds, black and Hispanic kids, especially to get access to these competitive schools. That I think is something that, you know, a year ago, two years ago would have been this protracted six month, you know, inside baseball. He's, pulling everybody, talking to the committees and creating committees and ignoring the committees. And all of a sudden, you know, it just happens overnight. Part of that is because I think he feels like in the pandemic, uh, he's got a freer hand. And part of that might be maybe his conscience saying, well, gee, who, what am I doing next? What have I gotten done? Where's my heart? I don't know. I mean, only he can tell us that. Well, and, and, you know, between it being his last year and the pandemic recovery, um, you know, it's almost like he has these perfect opportunities to advance things or, you know, finally do things or try new things that, you know, in sort of perfect Bill de Blasio fashion, he could do it in his last year. He won't have to deal with the ramifications and it can sort of be listed on his legacy. So he might see that sort of um, that sort of uh, win win situation for himself and and the city. It's also true that the city has shifted and, and really so have Democratic cities and Democratic politics has shifted so much farther to the left than where it was when the mayor came to office that I think you know, maybe, he, you know, he's the one who's got some catching up to do on that front in many ways. So yeah, that's interesting. And of course, as we talk about what the mayor may or may not try to do in 2021 and what the initial shape of his legacy looks like as he enters his final year, there will be the race to replace him, Bill de Blasio, of course, being term limited and a very crowded field vying to be the next mayor. Uh, so much will, of course, come down to the Democratic primary in June. Uh, that isn't necessarily determinative of the final outcome in the general election, but in a very heavily Democratic city, it makes the winner very likely to be the next mayor. So, Sally, you've been covering the early stages of this mayoral race um, closer than anybody. Uh, set the stage a little bit for us here. We don't we, we actually don't have time to name every single candidate who's running. <laughs> but, um, you know, Generally, uh, early on, what's your sense of sort of how the field is shaping up and what this election seems to be about? 
So with the big caveat that with ranked choice voting, it's very hard to handicap this race, um, you know, because voters will be able to rank five candidates as opposed to just picking one. It's sort of like an instant runoff. Um, it's being challenged, but unless those challenges are successful, which so far they don't seem like they will be, it's going to change the election in a way that I, I couldn't really predict. But it will change how candidates campaign um, because you have to get more than just your natural base. So with that said, I think the race is really interesting because, you know, when de Blasio came into office in 2013, he won because he ran a race that was a clear departure from Mike Bloomberg. And Mike Bloomberg had a very clear cut identity as, you know, a technocrat, a manager, somebody who put management of the city over the values that are in line with the majority of the Democratic Party. And people wanted to change. They didn't hate him. Like he still polled decently in the general electorate, but they wanted a departure. And de Blasio presented the clearest, um, cleanest departure. I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows what voters want right now, because there are people who feel like de Blasio hasn't managed well and they want a manager, somebody who can just make sure the city is running well in a time of crisis. As I mentioned earlier, someone who gets along with Cuomo is something I hear all the time. Um, but there is also, as Mara said, there's like an unprecedented movement toward a commitment to values, which was bolstered by the protests over the summer, the racial inequality that's been exposed by COVID, the school segregation, the sheer lack of affordability, the housing crisis, the homelessness crisis. And so I think the candidate who will be most successful will be able to appeal to both of the, it will be able to sort of answer both of those questions. What do you do about, you know, rampant inequality and can you manage a massive bureaucracy that is New York City? So I couldn't tell you like who I think will win or anything like that, but I think those are the two questions and they're sort of seen as two different candidates, but I think the candidates have to try to be both of those things. And you see in the field, there are people who occupy what we shorthand as the center lane, but those are really people who are focused on the management of the city. And then there are people who are pretty squarely focused on, you know, the values that will appeal to the left. What do you think, Mara? I think that's a perfect summary. I don't have anything to add. I, you know, I, I think this question of um, can someone pitch, you know, sort of a management uh, knowing government and also, you know, discuss social, racial, uh, economic justice issues. You know, it's it's already seemed in the early going like a very trying challenge for some of the candidates. Um, I, I'm also so struck initially by the fact that we have such a wide field. Obviously, there's so many people running even if you sort of try to chop off a top tier, there's still so many people running. Um, and we might even see more people entering. It looks like we will, you know, Max Rose is basically declared and we're waiting on Andrew Yang and perhaps others. Um, but, you know, there's so many first time candidates for office and people just who've never been on a ballot before and running for mayor of New York city. It's remarkable. And I know we, we had Mike Bloomberg do that and, and win three terms, but it's, you know, it's just startling to me that we have so many first time candidates for any office, much less mayor. And whether it's those candidates or people who've been in government as an elected official in this early going with just six months to the primary, 
I, I'm not hearing a lot from anybody really about what they want to do. Are they really ready to run the city? Um, you know, for us that follow this closely, it, it feels like, come on, let's hear some more. Uh, nobody's really paying attention to this, you know, in a real way until the uh, the year gets going. But those two things have been really striking to me about the field and about what I'm hearing from the candidates where people are just, you know, we keep having them on the show and they're just talking in these broad value statements and, and d- diagnosing the problem, you know, thank you. Yes. We, we, you know, we have a pretty good sense of the problem. We're looking to you for solutions, you know? Mara, where do you think we'll separate the wheat from the chaff along those lines? Like, what will you be looking for? Like, obviously, everyone's going to say de Blasio is terrible. Like, we, we know that. Everyone's going to say uh, we should get more help from the Biden administration for NYCHA and for transit. But like when it comes to kind of nuts and bolts, where do you think you're going to see some separation from candidates? What issues and what particular policy points? I mean, it's a great question. Certainly, I think... Hope, you know, hopefully at some point they will be forced to own their own policies rather than just play critic. And I think that's what I'm looking for. I think we're all looking for that. So um, how are you going to solve these big challenges? What is your vision for that? Um, that's what I'm most interested in. I imagine that's what voters are most interested in, um, if anything. But um, there, are, and there, are, there are, of course, pressure points, right? Um, I want to know what they think about what the police department should look like. Um, what should school admission look like? But also I'm curious who can build coalitions because ultimately you have to do so to win. So who's going to win 32BJ? Who can get the teachers union um, to come over to their side? I think that might help us sort out um, kind of I don't want to say the real candidates from, but the, the serious candidates, the viable candidates from the rest of the pack. And I don't know, I covered uh, the last mayor's race as did Sally and I know Ben, and I think you did too, um, Jared, but it's, it's just too soon to say, I mean, however wild and crazy you think it will be, it will be crazier. Um, you think about Anthony Weiner, who was poised to be mayor. <laughs> I'd rather um, not think about Anthony Weiner, no. if that's okay. But, um, yeah. There you go. But that's my point entirely, which is um, I kind of have seen enough to know, let's just let this play out a little bit. Um, but, but I am concerned that these candidates get scrutiny because I think in the pandemic, we're also focused understandably on what the government in charge is doing and that's very important, but I don't want that to become a dynamic where all of a sudden there's a new mayor and we have no idea who they are, what their plans are. They have not gone under the same scrutiny that they would have in a non-pandemic year. That That is a concern. So... That's a huge, that's a great point. And sorry, Ben, I just want to, uh, this no, is ahead. kind of for, for all of us just in our day-to-day uh, covering or, or writing about this, it's it's challenging, right? Because you have this huge field, um, you have weird campaigning because of the pandemic, and we have a primary that's coming up in June, not September. So like, Sally, have you thought about how are you going to approach covering the race when you have, you know, obviously there's some candidates we could summarily dismiss, whether that feels nice or not, but there's a fairly big bunch that we have to kind of take seriously, especially because of ranked choice voting. So how does one how does one cover a race with, you know, 10 to 15 sort of viable candidates in it? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
so far I just haven't slept, but I think that the solution- <laughs> That's not a long-term solution, Seth. not a long-term yeah. solution. The way that, you know, I try to view candidates um, in a few different ways, endorsements, money, ideas, and personal story, because any one of those things could make a person a successful candidate. So, you know, Scott Stringer has a lot of money and he's gotten a lot of endorsements. And of course, we'll start to see a lot of polling and that changes things too. But uh, Scott Stringer has all of the sort of trappings of a frontier candidate, but he polled pretty badly yesterday in a public poll. And is that because Andrew Yang, who has big name recognition, you know, sort of elbowed him out of the way in Manhattan where he has a base? I don't know. So, um, you know, I I assume that's part of it. But anyway, I think, you know, so my point with that is that the endorsements and the money that Scott Stringer brings to bear are significant, but they're not enough. Then you have somebody like Diane Morales, who hasn't gotten a lot of attention. She's a very clear set of policy proposals that appeal to a a segment of the electorate. Um, Maybe that means she'll get more donations. We'll see when the filing comes in January, but I'm paying attention to her because she's saying something no one else is saying in a very clear way. She has convictions that other people appealing to that, you know, um, that sector of voters aren't willing to say. Um, And then you have people like Eric Adams and Ray McGuire who speak to the most prolific voters, which are, you know, older black people in the outer boroughs in Brooklyn and Queens. So, the, you know, they have personal stories that I think will really connect with people. I'm sure in that list, I'm leaving out someone important and someone's going to yell at me when there's, this airs. There's so many names. Yeah. <laughs> but That's the point right. is that like, I think it's important to look at all of that. It, you know, I always tell my editor in February of 2013, when the primary was in September, Chris Quinn was polling at 37. <laughs> de Blasio was in like third place. Um, the editorial boards went with Chris Quinn. The endorsements went with Bill Thompson and Chris Quinn. I mean, de Blasio had a couple of really key endorsements. The big healthcare workers union was a big one that helped him. But he was able, because he had a, a message and a story and a clarity of purpose and benefited from the failures of other candidates who were maybe better positioned to win, you know, he won without a lot of the traditional things we look at. So I think that's not a great answer, but I think I, I try to look at more than just endorsements, money and polling, which are like the things you kind of like out of habit look to and really look at like who's saying something clear that has a populist message and who has a good personal story because that seems to matter more than ever in politics. Just quickly, oh, just oh, quickly, I, I want to say, I think we just hit on two really important sort of cautionary aspects of what is facing us in journalism and also voters in looking back at Bill de Blasio, one is the vetting of candidates, which again is, is harder with a bigger field, but Bill de Blasio was probably not vetted as well as he could or should have been by, by voters and the media. Um, But it's also very hard to vet someone in certain ways for the position of mayor of New York city, which there's just almost nothing else like, Um, but how we sort of assess personality types and managerial types and style of these, of these things, you know, every candidate is going to have a bunch of policy position papers out that will appeal to different people, but how do we really assess whether they could run the city? And then, you know, this idea that you just got at Sally of like, 
people who are really speaking to the electorate and the electorate is really hearing in an interesting way that we might not be able to fully pick up on. And that might be even more challenging in the, in the zoom era. Sorry, yeah. Molly, you were going to say. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I, I was just going to add quickly that it's really, I feel at a disadvantage as a reporter, not being able to talk to people on the street in the way that, you know, I would be were we not in a pandemic in the middle of winter. Um, and so hopefully that will become easier. Mm-hmm. Time goes on. On policing, I'm wondering if, um, you know, it's obviously going to be a huge issue. It was in 2013, Bill de Blasio kind of wrote it to, to city hall. And on that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think. My sense is that, you know, someone who um, is endorsing the NYPD status quo is probably not going to work. Someone who is calling for outright uh, abolition or, or, you know, a strong defunding platform is probably not going to prevail either. You're going to have to somehow thread the needle between uh, talking about changing how policing occurs, but especially in neighborhoods that are seeing higher crime, uh, talk about how you intend to, to manage it on a daily basis, right? I mean, what do you think is the policing message that's going to prevail, Mara? Do you have a sense of uh, of where what what kind of a, a, a hole someone needs to aim for? I mean, that's it's a very hard political line to walk. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner, I can't quote her directly, but she said something very interesting about policing the other day. I thought it was very smart. Um, it was essentially to the effect of, of course, we need police. Uh, I'm also very concerned about the increase in crime. So we really need to um, go all the way and address that. But also uh, noting that the police commissioner and the police department should be held accountable to the mayor and to the public. And that uh, there really needs to be some dramatic change there. And I think it's really one thing that's kind of remarkable is it's just not a radical idea, but in New York where the police are seen as just this larger than life um, kind of, it's a hero worship issue um, in some ways it's it's radical to suggest that they might need to be um, held more accountable. And that's not to say that policing is easy or that, um, you know, most officers aren't working extremely hard and putting their lives on the line to do a tough job. But um, I, I really think that uh, for a lot of reasons, um, some of them stemming back to 9-11 and kind of the mystique that, developed around around them, especially in New York, that the police department in some ways has become kind of like the Kremlin and is not accountable um, to really anybody outside the department itself. Um, and so I think the question is not just a statement of values from somebody, but also who is willing to put down the political capital and stop that. Because um, I think that actually is the key to not only fair policing, but also competent policing. Um, So they're actually one in the same. If you have a functioning um, police department that's held accountable like any other city agency, I'm not saying this is easy, but the the task is the same. It's you're accountable um, in every way. Um, So I think uh, that's what I'm personally looking for. I don't know who's up to that task. Sally, just, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I just wanted 
I wanted to add something to what Jared asked earlier about where we'll see the difference, uh, you know, the fault lines or the differences between the candidate among the candidates. And, you know, there was a housing forum a few weeks ago, and I wanted to just flag this as an issue where I think you will really see some some policy distinctions that we could sink our teeth into because there were questions about, you know, the uh, private development on public housing land and, uh, rezonings and how to fund affordable housing, what's affordable enough. And I thought the discussion was like quite substantive and also really showcased some differences. There were candidates who are like, we need to develop more housing because that's how we get out of a housing crisis. And there were other candidates who were very skeptical of the model that, you know, enriches private developers. And so I think I just uh, had meant to answer that earlier. You know, I think that's an area where I think you will see very, you know, some clear policy differences between the candidates. And I think that ties into just larger, the larger issue of development too, which includes job development, economic development, which, you know, obviously coming out of this pandemic, people are going to need good plans that they can execute that show Where's the future of of work in this city? How's it changed for good? Does the vaccine, you know, mean we're going back to pre-pandemic pretty soon? I don't think so. But, you know, what does that look like? Who's really adept at talking about that? Who has a plan for helping revive tourism and, and all this stuff? And how welcoming, you know, just like on the housing front, how how welcoming are candidates to big economic development deals? And what are they going to insist that those look like? You know, I think those are big overarching themes that we've already seen some difference on. Um, final couple minutes here, unfortunately. Um, uh, I, I think we want to just ask both of you if there's um, any other races that you're most interested in. You know, the mayor's race is really going to dominate things, but there are a whole bunch of other races happening in 2021. We'll be digging into lots of them. So will you. So, you know, we're not trying to cover everything here, but is there another race or two that's particularly on your mind as we enter this all important election year, Mara? I'm looking at, I'm interested in DA races. So I'm just starting to dig into that now. Yeah. And especially the the Manhattan district attorney race where another, another big field. We're we're still, we're still awaiting final word from Zy Vance, but he doesn't look like he's running. Sally, any, any races you're particularly interested in? I'm, I'm following to the best extent I can, the makeup of the next city council. I'm not following individual council races, but there have been a number of slates of endorsements. Uh, The DSA has endorsed uh, six people. The working families party has endorsed, I think 12 There's uh, a pro-development group, Open New York, that just did a slate of eight candidates. Of course, there's crossover among some of these candidates, but I'm really interested in seeing what the next city council will look like, what inroads the DSA might be able to make in the council. And then, of course, who the speaker will be, which is a race that begins and ends for our, you know, consumption in like three weeks, but is, of course, going on. And there's like eight, you know, right now, and there's about... I don't know, six or seven candidates in the council who are interested in it. And then people who haven't been elected yet who are running, who are said to be interested in running for speaker. I mean, the speaker of the council is a is a big job. It's an important job. And it's also a, it can be a sort of larger than life figure as Corey Johnson was at the beginning of his tenure. And, you know, Chris Quinn ran for mayor. Melissa Mark Viverito made a run for a number of offices. Uh, it's hard to run for office successfully from being speaker, but it's certainly a position that commands 
uh, a lot of power, more power than most speakers even seem to be willing to embrace. So I'd say that is the, you know, that's sort of where my leftover focus is. And, and as you're getting at a lot of the individual council races and who wins those will help determine the makeup of the body that then chooses the speaker. And if there's this really big left, you know, leftist uh, coalition that can then make a leftist, um, you know, the speaker. And so I'm glad you mentioned that because we talked a bit about, you know, the mayor governor relationship that the next mayor is going to have to deal with. But of course the mayor city council uh, speaker relationship and mayor city council broader relationship is really important too. Uh, all right. Thank you both so much, Mara Gay of the New York Times editorial board, Sally Goldenberg of Politico New York. Thank you so much for the time. And we'll be reading all of your work, of course, at the end of this year and into next. Thank you guys. Thank you. Me and happy holidays to everybody. Happy New Year. So, Jared, really interesting conversation with Mara Gay and Sally Goldenberg. Um, anything you know that stood out to you or anything that it made you start thinking about a little bit more that you hadn't been thinking about or what, what, what is, where does that conversation leave you? Well, I thought on the first part about de Blasio's legacy, they both made great points. I think Mara talking about de Blasio's kind of instinctive conservatism and how that has been both in terms of his approach to policy and just the, you know, his approach to government, how insular he is, um, how how close he keeps uh, some decisions to his vast, the lack of um, uh, uh, delegating to commissioners, how that has shaped his mayoralty, I think was fascinating. Uh, and then also Sally's point about him being, you know, a small mayor, but, you know, someone who history is probably not going to judge quite as harshly as we do now. I think that was an interesting point. Um, you know, none of us in the scope of history, we're all pretty small players and none of us can decide exactly how, if you're just going to look back on us, um, certainly some mayors have gone out of office uh, on a high and looked a lot less great in the rearview mirror. Others like John Lindsay have had later kind of revisionist uh, reconsiderations that probably more fairly assess their pros and cons and Bill de Blasio uh, potentially will benefit from some of that. So I think, you know, he does not know, we don't know what's going to stand up to the court of history and what will stick out. I do think that this period of time in the city is so important and so shaping that what he does over the next year, if any of it sticks, if any of it makes a business a big, a big difference, um, will go a long way to maybe burnishing that legacy in addition to improving life in the city. It may be that, you know, Bill de Blasio's final chapter has not been written and it might be the chapter that really counts. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think those are great points. Um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, at this point, I, I might be too, I might be too close to it, you know, watching the mayor's briefings almost every day and, and all of this to have a, a better sense of this. But I do think long term, um, you know, the sort of managerial style that he brought to being mayor will be in the in the sort of first paragraph or two of, of the discussion of his legacy, because it has held him back so much. He's, um, you know, I don't know that anybody would be that much better at managing the relationship with Andrew Cuomo, but I do think a lot of people would be better. Uh, he struggled so much with that. He's struggled so much with building political capital and alliances in a really confusing way, given he was such a masterful campaigner and, you know, until he ran for president had never lost an election. And, um, you know, he's just sort of failed to build uh, popular support for things, to get the right political allies in place for things. 
has failed to be imaginative, has been just, you know, uh, the management piece and the leadership piece too. You know, those are sort of similar but different. Um, just the mayor who doesn't really like to be out and about in the city, checking out the progress on his programs or really um, showing New Yorkers in an important way that he's working for them. It's just really been damning. And so I think that's been one of the most interesting things about Corey Johnson not running for mayor is we thought we were going to have this really, um, you know, sort of big character divergence from de Blasio running. And we don't really have that in the race right now. And maybe that's where an Andrew Yang comes in. But, you know, I think that piece of de Blasio's sort of character and, and management, you know, are so important to both his legacy and the race um, that's about to unfold to replace him. Yeah, in some ways, de Blasio was uh, a bad politician. In, in addition to the flaws in his management, just the, the you know, sort of human side of of being mayor is something he just never seemed to grasp, whether it was in public or in his relationship with other with other players. Yeah, and you know, I think there's this will be. I think this is very important to have real conversations with the mayoral candidates on not just sort of soundbite you know, de Blasio has been really bad on X and Y, but really talking to them about what, what lessons they've learned from watching his mayoralty. Because, you know, as we got it in that conversation, you know, the de Blasio break from Bloomberg was, was so clear. There, the next break here is not going to be as clear no matter what, assuming there's mm-hmm. another Democratic mayor, right? Because the values are going to generally line up in a lot of ways. You know, even if it's someone a little further to de Blasio's left or it's someone a little to his right, whatever it is, you know, a lot of the values are going to be similar. And so much of it is about what do you prioritize? How do you manage? How do you build relationships? How do you keep the public, you know, with you and behind you and, and, and fight and, and show a vision and execute it? Um, you know, I think it's going to be important to hear from the mayoral candidates, how they really learn from him and what they would take, take from that and do differently. Ben, happy holidays and happy new year to you. Jared, same to you. It's been another uh, good year, however troubling uh, for the city. It's been another good year talking it all uh, over with you and, and happy holidays and happy new year to you. Same to you. Merry Christmas and happy new year to everyone out there. And please have a great week and a great year in a city in the world.